This is Trust the Evidence, a new podcast series from the Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine at the University of Oxford, presenting conversations with individuals interested in improving healthcare through the use of better evidence. I'm very lucky today to have Steve Woolishin and Lisa Schwartz, uh, professors of medicine and community and family medicine, but you're also uh, directors of the Medicine in the Media programme, is that correct? Yes. Okay, interesting. So I'd like to ask your first question is, you're really sort of experts and interested in the world of communication. How did you first get interested in that? Um, I think it started when we were doing our fellowship, and... um, we started to learn really about the evidence behind the things that we were doing and it was kind of shocking for all the things that we really believed in you know we believed that screening was love we believed that um, you know that we were doing all these great things for people and um, then we started to realize that things were much more complicated than that and we were shocked that we had just finished our training and we didn't really know that and I think we started to become really interested in trying to communicate that both to the public and to um, okay. you know our own community. Well, we, we also as we tried to read the evidence, I think we realized how poorly trained we were in understanding evidence. Um, I mean, even ba- basic stuff. I mean, I, I think I had a one epibio course in uh, medical school, which I don't know, I think I paid attention to. And so really, I mean, I was reading things and I didn't really know what was going on and asking people and not really being clear that they understood what they were saying when they were trying to answer yeah. me. And so it really got us, to started, inspired us to work hard to try to figure out how to understand and, you know, just basic statistics. And then if you understand things, then you can explain them. If you can't understand them, you can't explain them. Well, I've got your book here, which is Know Your Chances, Understanding Health Statistics, which what interested me about this book is, this is not just a usual book. You actually went out and did a trial of this book. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's funny. So we got a grant, and um, yeah, and one of the things we had to do in the grant was to convince people that anybody would want to read a book about statistics. And not only did we want them to read it, um, we wanted to prove that it taught people something. Um, and it did. And we tested it in two different um, groups of people. Um, one was people who were really motivated about their health who came to a community medical school series. And then in a lower educated population who we thought would really need it because they would have um, more limited skills. And so the two populations, people who really needed it and also people we thought would be interested in wanting yeah. it. And the original version, I mean, you have the official version. Okay. Which is, but it's, you can get it for free on the National Institute of Health, um, National Library of Medicine in the States. Okay. But the original version that we tested is slightly different. It was a, a you know, mom and pop uh, version. Okay. With, I like it in some ways better because it has cartoons that I drew. <laughs> uh, but the book, we, we really wanted the book to be accessible to people. So we tried to be very careful about the language that we use. We built in quizzes so people yeah. could track their progress. Um, and we put in, you know, put, um, where, where they could go for more information. So we really wanted this to be a book that people would enjoy reading. It wouldn't be like going to the dentist, um, even those yeah, statistics, yeah. and really could see that they were, were learning. So if, I took, if you took the core competencies, if you like, if you said, look, actually, I'm going to go out there and teach the public a bit about knowing your chances, risk, what do you think are the key sorts of bit of that, of that curriculum, if you like, that individuals need to know, particularly in this modern world of the post-fact world, as information <laughs> is greater, there are more problems with facts than ever. What do you think are the core competencies in terms of 
knowing your numbers or your chances? Um, well, the first thing is knowing that you need to know okay. some numbers. Um, but it's not just not, it's more than numbers. It's um, I mean, the, the book largely focuses on numbers, but there's other things in there as well. Because you need to know something about the credibility of the information, okay. the source of the information, all that sort of stuff. But when it comes to numbers, um, get numbers, because a lot of times people will only hear sort of qualitative statements and, or, or know, they just assume that you know, interventions work really well for everyone. So the first thing is about getting some numbers. And we talk a lot about the form of the number because there's many ways to say the same thing and some are more understandable than others, some are actually quite misleading. So we try to teach people how to get down to absolute risks um, and you know, understand um, what kinds of questions okay. to ask to make sure they can get them. Let's just pick up on that point. In fact, this, this concept of absolute versus relative. I mean, I got up this morning and it said I've got, a, if I cycle to work, which is great, I do cycle, it said I've got a 50% chance of reduction in my chances of heart attack, stroke and cancer, which is one of them classic statements, isn't it? Because but, you get hit by a bus. <laughs> <laughs> on the way. Risk, yeah. But there's a big issue, isn't it, in, in absolute versus relative and how that's used by the media to portray... Big effects, if you like. Yeah, right. I mean, that's an example we use in the, in the book. We use an example of um, of, a, of a coupon or a sale, and you get fifty percent off on any yeah. item. And you know, we say, well, that's great. If, but wouldn't you care where you go? Like, if you go to a store that's selling Ferraris, that's a big savings. Yeah, yeah. But if you're going to a store where they sell like gum, yeah. Right? And so one of the the cartoons is a, is a chicken, and he went and used it for the gum. Yeah. Okay. So he was a, not a smart chicken. You were involved in the drug facts books, is that right? Right. Well, actually, one of the things that um, we started to realize about the evidence, particularly about prescription drugs, is, I mean, in the U.S., we have um, direct-to-consumer advertising yeah. about prescription drugs, and the ads just make it look like every drug is a miracle. Okay. And um, the side effects are buried in long laundry lists. Um, they're not prioritized. And... Um, we had done a study looking um, at the ads, and the thing that was just amazing was just how infrequently they ever gave numbers about how well the drugs okay. work. And so what we um, thought was that you could make simple data tables where you showed people with absolute um, numbers the benefits and the side effects prioritized into the serious and the symptom side effects. Um, so that people could understand, really, what's this drug going to do for me and how might it hurt yeah. me? Um, and we worked for maybe 15 years to get FDA to, uh, <laughs> to, to put them on drug ads. Um, it hasn't happened yet, but we're still hoping. But did it get, actually, you trialed it on some medications, didn't you, that actually you could have get thought like the number needed to treat alongside the benefits and the harms, and did, did that improve understanding? We, we tested um, a comprehension of drug facts boxes in a general population, you know, in a, in a natural, as a national representative. In a randomized, randomized trial. trial. And we showed, compared, we showed like a, a standard drug which mm. has all the problems that Lisa said, versus one where we replaced this mandatory small print um, list of information that the FDA requires with a drug box. And we showed that there was a substantial improvement in um, in comprehension. The way we measured it was we, we chose two drugs that had um, similar side effects, but one was objectively much better than the other. So there was a clear choice. All things being equal, you'd want drug A, not drug B. Mm -hmm. And compared to people who um, got the um, standard drug ad, it was 70% of people 
using the drug facts block version shows the right drug, and I think 30 percent shows it. So it was a big, big difference. And, and this was a real, you know, and this is and this is that's a hard task. So you have to look at yeah. two data tables and um, compare them and decide which is the better drug. And we were just really encouraged that if you make this information simple and comprehensible, that people really can make use of it. So one of the things that, that, that really strikes me, you thought, it, it makes common sense. It seems obvious, but you, it's right, we're left a bit. 15 years in the FDA, it's probably going to be another 15 years. That the notion of comprehension is an understanding seems to be something that's marginalised to replace that with uncertainty, which seems to be a better status quo to sell the medications and, and push drugs that may or may not work. So, and why do you think, is that just a, a market phenomenon or is it something structurally we should be thinking about? Well, I think there are a few things. One is, I mean, it's clearly a marketing phenomenon because it's not in your interest to... Well, if a drug is a real winner, it's, mm. it shows its worth. But most drugs are not you know, tremendously... are not winners. Um, they may have benefits, but not huge. So that's one reason. But the other reason is, I think there's a big assumption that a lot of people make is that consumers are too stupid to understand this information. I mean, we heard all through our careers, people are telling us, well, you know, people are too stupid, they're numerous, you know. But if you give people information in a way they can understand, they understand it. They want it, they can use it. If you give them information that's confusing or misleading or incomplete, they make bad decisions. So I guess that then leads to where you are now as a sort of the campaign or maybe the director of the Medicine in the Media program. That's been thought the last five or six years, I guess, but it probably has been coming over time. So I looked up, it was about 2012 that was founded, was it? The Medicine and Media, or am I? Has it always been there? Well, well I... I think it's been there since before them, but I, yeah. well, it's it's <laughs> a small program. <laughs> Let's put it that way. But a big issue. A big issue. But we've been teaching journalists, um, which is related. That's part of the core mission for many, many years. Um, and we've been teaching a course at NIH. Okay. Um, it's a four-day course. It's run annually for what, like 12, 13 oh. years, um, where we get. It's really exciting. We look at like 200 applicants. These are really, wow. really working journalists, and we take 50 and we have them for four days. And we, we actually, it's much like the the uh, the, the, the curriculum is modeled on your chances. Okay. Um, so your question before was very precious. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, um, the the best media, um, meeting this year is has been put on hold for political reasons because the NIH budget okay. is being cut. But um, but it's a wonderful program. And, the journalists are just like I was when I finished medical school. They don't really have any background. In but they know they're being sold a bill of goods, right? Yeah. I mean, that's the thing is that they are amazing to teach because they know that they're, you know, being sort of exaggerated to and, and they want to be able to see through it and know what questions to ask. And that by teaching them the skills and then also by um, being there for them as they start to question things, uh, I think one of the most exciting or, or gratifying emails that we got was from um, a national television producer, and she had arg argued this um, hopelessly confounded study about hair dye causing cancer okay. off the news. And, um, you know, that's something you'll never hear about, but that's sometimes that's absolutely the best outcome, to be able to argue bad science off the news. So what would be the one bit of advice to journalists out there who are people who are writing about research or findings? What would be a one critical thing that they should do, apart from come on your course, <laughs> which is maybe next year when the NIH gets its sense again? What would be the one thing that they should do? I, I think they just need to 
ask hard questions about what's the science behind this claim and how good is it? And um, start, and then to ask, well, and what are the numbers? And I think that by asking a few basic questions, you usually can start to uncover, or you know, or sort of lies start to unravel. So, so one is, we, we tell them to be as skeptical of medical stories and medical research as they are of politics, to, to, to use the same you know, level of skepticism to question everything. And then the second thing is, um, I, I agree with everything you said, the other thing I would add is, if you talk about the benefit of an intervention, you have to talk about the harms. Um, and you need to give in the, uh, numbers, and you have to give the numbers in the same way for the same time frame, because it's really easy to distort things by a simple, it seems so trivial, but little changes in how you say things can really change perceptions. Wow, that's really interesting. So basically we've gone to a point that you have to be skeptical of research as politics, talk about the benefits and the harm, every drug isn't a miracle, and screening is definitely not love. Thanks to Steve and Lisa. That was a great interest in him. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Brilliant. Thank you for listening to Trust the Evidence. If you liked this episode and would like to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.cebm.net or find us on SoundCloud and iTunes by searching Trust the Evidence. See you next time.